Well, please keep your Bibles open at that uh, reading that we've just had uh, this evening. I'm trying to get back into the way of doing this preaching thing, which I haven't been doing for three weeks, so you'll have to forgive me if I haven't quite got my stride back. Basically, I would preach every day if I could, and uh, would not take any Sundays off. My wife insists that I do, but the last three Sundays were not holiday. I want you to know that. They were not vacation. They were imposed on me as a form of punishment. (laughs) And uh, I endured it manfully. And I'm glad it's all over. Now, we're back here in Acts. Acts is coming to an end. And uh, I want you to, we're going to be taking some big chunks. And we're going to take a big chunk tonight. But it's not going to take a lot of time. It's a big chunk of scripture. But I'm going to make it as brief as possible this evening because we have communion. Uh, in a moment. We use the word faith in a variety of ways, don't we, in our, in our lives. We, we engage faith uh, in, in a variety of ways. For example, you had faith this evening. You came along to this church and you sat down in these pews. For all you know, the, the pews could have been rigged, like I did once with a friend of mine, for, uh, because we, we knew that these people sat in the same place every week, And we kind of rigged it up so that when they came in and they sat down, the pew collapsed. And it caused a bit of chaos. Well, I haven't done that for a long while, but you never know what might happen. So I want you to keep on exercising faith that when you come here and you sit down, that that pew is going to take your weight. We exercise faith in a different sense, of course, when 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 we engage ourselves to trust in what the Lord Jesus has accomplished for us what we call saving faith. We trust in Him. We rest, to use the language of our confession. We we rest on Christ. We receive Him. We rest on Him. We put our weight on Him. We, We regard Him as being able to take us because He has done all that is required for us in order to bring us to God. We don't need anybody else. We only need Jesus. He's our passport into heaven, a ticket into heaven. He's the only one on whose work alone, we are assured of acceptance by God into His presence. So we use faith in that sense. But tonight I want to use faith in another sense, and it's also used in the Bible. Uh, We might say that faith is a four-letter word, spelt R-I-S-K, risk. Faith involves risk. And this is to do not with salvation, This is to do not with your relationship with God, but it does have to do with what might happen to you, what might fall out in your life. And we find this illustrated in this chapter. We find it illustrated in two ways in this chapter that we're going to see in a moment. Now I wonder if, as we read it, whether you felt that this chapter was really a kind of incidental thing. It's kind of filler, because here we have a record of a number of journeys from A to B, from B to C, from C to D, and so on. And it starts off where Paul was, uh, and it takes Paul to Jerusalem. And we know that Paul's ultimate goal is to get to Rome, but he wants to go back to Jerusalem en route to Rome. He's completing the circle, in other words, that has begun early on in the book of Acts, where from Jerusalem into Judea, then Samaria, and then to the Gentile lands, the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem into the world. 
The prophets predicted that that's what would happen. And that has been worked out. Jesus said that, was, that, that is what would happen. And it's been worked out in the story of the book of Acts. But now the main goal is Rome. Rome, the capital of the empire. Rome that symbolized in their day the ends of the earth. Rome that stands for the world in its largeness, in its completeness. Now the gospel is going to go straight from Jerusalem to Rome and Paul is going to be the one that God will use to get the gospel to Rome. But first, he has to go to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of emotion in this passage. Did you notice that? In verse 1, for example, of chapter 21, we see emotion. When we had parted from them. Actually, in the Greek, the word is when we had torn ourselves away from them. When we torn ourselves away from them. Here is, here is a, a farewell that's going on here. If you glance back into chapter 20 there, the chapter's... Are, are unhelpful here. The divisions are unhelpful. But at the end of chapter 20, you do notice that in verse uh, 36, 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again after we had torn ourselves away from them. That's the context of that. And then, then in verse 13, do you see when Paul says to these people, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? In other words, this is a very personal, very emotional uh, situation. It's involving people, real people. Paul is a real person. He has real feelings. He is held in great affection by those who know him. They love him. He loves them. If you read Paul's letters, you'll find that he's constantly ref referring to people by name that he knows. You read the, the end of the book of Romans and you've got nearly a whole chapter given over to the names of people that he recognizes and that he knows in Rome and that he's looking forward to seeing. Paul is a people person. He is no remote, atmospheric academic. He is a person engaged with real people in the world and they loved him. They loved him because he loved them back. Well, in this chapter, we're going to look at the heart of the apostle. And as he goes from Jer to Jerusalem and then on to Rome, his faith is marked by a willingness to risk everything for Jesus. Let me put it in two statements. First of all, he is willing to risk his life for the sake of of the gospel. That's the first statement. Second statement, he is willing to risk his reputation for the sake of the gospel. Let's look at both of those things together. He's willing to risk his life for the sake of the gospel. That's really what verses 1 to 16 are all about. Did you notice that throughout that little section we are reminded of warnings that the apostle received? In the midst of the heart-rending farewells, there is a sense that has gripped the, the friends of the apostle that this move of his, this visit of his to Jerusalem is of a magnitude, a, a, a magnitude that is just overwhelming for them and difficult for them to grasp. If you look back to chapter 20, verse 23, you'll find 
that we're told there that in every city that he went to, in every city that Paul went to, on his way to Miletus, where this farewell takes place, the Holy Spirit was telling him the same thing. People were coming up to him, telling him that the Spirit had impressed this upon their hearts. And what was the Holy Spirit telling him? He says this, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. This was Paul's future, prison and hardships. And how did Paul interpret those spirit-prompted predictions? He took those predictions as prophecies, not as permission to avoid what lay ahead. In other words, he heard what was being said to him. He heard all these messages, prison and hardships, prison and hardships, suffering. That's ahead for you, Paul. But Paul took these as spirit-anointed, spirit-given intimations of what God's agenda for him was, not as divine permissions to avoid it, or even as commands to avoid it. He had decided, he resolved in his own heart, that he would take whatever was coming to him for the sake of Christ. Now we know that this apostle had a clear idea of what the will of God for him was. Uh, the Egyptian, or sorry, the Ephesian elders uh, understood that prison and hardship awaited. Jerusalem is mentioned three times in this passage, and each time it's the place where the apostle was going to suffer. And it's interesting that in the book of Luke, which is in two parts, the book we call Luke and the book we call Acts, the book of Luke as a whole, in its two volumes, has a lot to say about Jerusalem. If you look at volume one, Jerusalem comes onto the scene as the place where Jesus, the Messiah, is going to suffer. In volume 2, Jerusalem is the place where the Apostle Paul is going to suffer. In book 1, Jesus, we're told, set his face steadfastly like a flint to go to Jerusalem to suffer there. The language that's used of Jesus is language that comes from Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7. Where the servant of the Lord, God's anointed servant, says this, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The servant of the Lord sets his face to suffer whatever lies ahead for him. And Jesus sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And so when we get to volume 2 and we find Paul, who is the servant of the servant of the Lord... The Apostle Paul sets his face to go to Jerusalem and take what's coming to him there. He's walking in the Master's footprints. He wants to take the route the Master went. He understands that in the economy of God's grace, at this time in salvation history, at this moment that is unique in the history of the church and the world, that Jesus' apostles have been appointed by Jesus to follow his footsteps so that they, along with him, will be the testimony that you and I need 
as we live our Christian lives the testimony of the authenticity of the message that has been delivered by them to the church and which we now have in our scripture. So Paul's way is the way of Jesus. And then here in chapter 21 verses 4 and 11 we find the record of two further warnings in verse 4. Through the Spirit the people of Tyre urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. In verse 11, it's even more dramatic. A prophet called Agabus takes Paul's belt and then, I was going to take mine off there, but you don't want that to happen, and illustrate the point. Uh, he takes Paul's belt and he wraps it round and he pretends that he's tying his own hands and his own feet. And he says, listen to what he says, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now what are you to make of this? I know some respected Bible teachers, they read this and they say, Paul was disobedient here. Paul should not have gone to Jerusalem. Holy Spirit was warning him. He should have gone. He should listen to his friends. They were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. In fact, one uh, highly respected Bible teacher uh, on his, in his study on this chapter calls this chapter or this section, when a good man fails. Is that what you think is going on here? Do you think the Apostle Paul is failing here? Because the argument is that here is the Apostle, and in his overconfidence, in an excess of zeal, he is foolishly refusing to listen to the Spirit's voice, and he's disobeying the Holy Spirit. Do we think that's what's going on? Let's reflect on that just for a moment. Is Paul the kind of person who would do that? Well, we know, of course, we know people who, generally speaking in their life, are not the kinds of people who would disobey the will of God, but we know that they have fallen. They have fallen into sin. Good people who normally do the will of God can, at some point in their life, do the abnormal thing and disobey the will of God. We know that happens. It happens to us. It happens to others. But the interesting thing is, if you go back and you look at chapter 19, verse 21, and then at chapter 20, verse 22, which talk about the journey to Jerusalem, on both those occasions, both the decision to go to Jerusalem and the compulsion to go to Jerusalem, both of those things are said in the text to be entonumati. In other words, in the spirit that Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem, Paul's con, uh, con, uh, compulsion to go to Jerusalem, are both said in those passages to be in the spirit. In other words, that the firm conviction that he was meant to go to Jerusalem was both the right thing to do and the will of God for him. And I would argue that there is nothing in all the other warnings that indicates that along with the revelation, this is what will happen, that there was a command or a word from God saying, and you shall not go, or I don't want you to go, or you must not go. You don't get any of that. All you have is a revelation of what will happen. That in fact, what we have here in the story are people interpreting the revelation and they're interpreting it wrongly. 
They're interpreting it long, wrongly. Why? Because they love Paul. I mean, if you heard that somebody you love dearly is going into a situation that is dangerous and they're going to die there, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want them not to go? Wouldn't you want them not to go? Of course you would. Would you try and persuade them not to go? Of course you would. And that's what these people are doing for Paul. Let me, let me put it like this. These are some points for us to consider. Paul, is, uh, Paul understood, you see, that the will of God is sometimes not easy. I've no doubt that some of the believers then, like some of us today, feel that the will of God can be gauged by things falling into place for us. You know, the, you know the idea. The thinking goes like this. If I can apply it to this section here. If Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. Therefore, that can't be right. Behind this is a logical syllogism. God wants me happy. If I am unhappy, I am not in his will. That's very often the way we think, isn't it? So we look at this story and we see here are these people telling Paul, you go there, you're going to suffer. Therefore, you shouldn't go. So why? Because why should you suffer? Here's how Oswald Chambers puts it. He says, uh, the biblical understanding can be summed up like this. To choose to suffer, to choose to suffer, for you to make a decision, I am going to suffer for Jesus tells me that there's something wrong with you. You need to go and see a psychiatrist. But for you to say, I choose God's will, even if it involves suffering, is a very different thing. In other words, to look for suffering, to search it out, your bananas. But to choose the will of God, even though that will may involve suffering, is the way of obedience. The way of Jesus, whether there's suffering involved or not. That's the first thing. The second thing is that our conviction about God's will is often tested by the most unlikely sources. So we know that Paul has already come to the conviction in the spirit that he should go to Jerusalem and so we, he goes to Tyre, and he meets Christian people there in this passage. He goes to Tyre, and he meets friends of his. And they confuse the prediction with a prohibition. When Agabus speaks his prophecy, you see that Paul is going to go, and he's going to be tied up, and so on. Uh, if Paul had listened to his friends and didn't go, then Agabus, the prophet, would have been disproved. He would have been discredited. We understand the psychology of these people very well. They know he's going to Jerusalem. They're weeping and breaking his heart. That's what he tells them. But he's saying to them, look, I cannot avoid what God wants me to do. He's told me to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Maybe something is going to happen in Jerusalem that's going to get me to Rome. It was. But he's prepared for the will of God. So he says to them, verse 13, it's a key verse in the whole passage. I am ready, he says, I'm ready, not only to be bound, which is what Agabus predicted, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, his friends are motivated by their love for Paul 
And Paul is motivated by his love for the Lord Jesus. And his love for the Lord Jesus overrides every other consideration. He is willing to risk his life for the Lord Jesus. Dean Farrer, uh, an old Anglican minister, wrote this. Those whose intentions towards us are the best are the most dangerous to us when their intentions are merely human. How often a man's enemies are those of his own household. Their friends who love them best become in their worldliness their worst enemies. They drag them down from the heights of self-sacrifice to the vulgar, the conventional, and the comfortable. And verse 13 in this passage tells us, shows us how, tore, how they tore at his heart. They constituted a temptation to the apostle. He's saying to them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Because I'm doing this thing. Don't you see? I have to do this thing. And I'm ready for whatever the implications are if I go to Jerusalem. Well, their final acquiescence in verse 14 seems to indicate that they recognized that he was right and they were wrong. And that's confirmed later on in chapter 23, verse 11, when God visits Paul in prison and says to him, take courage, God says, as you have testified to me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, throughout this whole experience, Paul has a get-out-of-jail-free card. He could choose not to go to Jerusalem. He could just choose to listen to his friends. He had that choice. What happens to a believer is you're liberated. You're liberated. You're given freedom. You're given freedom to choose. It's one of the effects of the new birth. One of the effects of the new birth is that you now have a will that has been liberated by Christ. You're free to choose the truth. And Paul was free. He was free not to go. But he chose the will of God. I think of two great Germans, Martin Luther and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Martin Luther, when he was called to trial at Worm for his faith, all his friends were saying to him, Dr. Luther, don't go. Don't go. You know, they're going to kill you if you go. You mustn't go. You'd be foolish. You'd be threatening the whole Reformation if you go there. Threatening your own life. He says, I don't care if there's devils in every one of the, 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 the rooftops of Worm. I'm going to go there because God wants me to go there. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was lecturing in New York City. He could have stayed in New York City lecturing, but he chose. He chose to go back to Nazi Germany. He did, not want to, he did not want to sit in the sidelines while his own people, his own nation, suffered. And so he goes back to Germany, although from the very beginning he has, from the very election of Adolf Hitler, he has spoken out against Hitlerism in Germany. And he returns to his fatherland to give leadership during those dark days of war, knowing that he was putting his life at risk for the gospel. And what made Paul and Luther and Bonhoeffer great is that they knew the will of God and they did it. Paul is willing to risk his life for the gospel. Well, the second little section 
tells us that he was also willing to risk his reputation for the gospel. Because if going to Jerusalem was a threat to his life, his actions when he gets there have raised a whole number of questions in the minds of Christian people. Did he do the right thing? There are some people who say he did the wrong thing. What does he do? He gets there and he hears the very good news that God has been doing a great work among the Jews of Jerusalem. In fact, by this stage, we have to say that Jerusalem is fast becoming a Christian city. And by AD 70, the population of Jerusalem, there is no doubt, has an enormous Christian element to it already. And they praise God in verse 20. They praise God for this amazing growth in the gospel there. Verse 20 tells us, James reports, see how many thousands of Jews have believed. But James also reports this, that among these Jewish believers, the idea was going around among them that the apostle Paul was teaching Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem in Gentile areas, he was teaching them not to circumcise their sons or to live according to Jewish customs. Now, there's a sense in which there was an element of truth in that, but the way they were positioning that truth was, was wrong. What Paul was doing in these other places is that he was flexible. He was telling people that they, that they were free as as believers, they, they were no longer bound to these customs of the Jews. They were free either to continue them or not continue them. Because either continuing them or not continuing had absolutely no relevance whatsoever to their salvation. They were free to do it, free not to do it. After all, there they were living in the transitional period where Judaism, which was God's revealed religion, is moving into Christianity, which is the fulfillment of God's revelation to the Jews. So they're in that in-between time. And in that in-between time, that, that's a massive shift going on, especially for believing Jews. And they're in the middle of that, in the cockpit of that decision. And Paul had never told Jews to stop being Jews. He never told Christian Jews that they must not circumcise their sons. God had commanded all Israelites as Israelites to circumcise their sons. And so many Christian Jews therefore still felt conscience bound to continue with this rite, not in order to gain salvation, not to gain salvation. They already knew that that didn't do them any good. They already knew that circumcision had taken, been taken over by baptism in the Christian sense, but they still felt that as Jews, as Israelites, as part of the Jewish family that they should retain that right, not for salvation purposes, but simply to please the Lord. Now, Paul was always clear that that was fine. He was also clear that Gentiles did not have to circumcise. They did not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. And that was clear as well. So when he gets to Jerusalem, he's told about this thing. James asks him if he will do something to alleviate this misrepresentation that's going around. Will he take a vow? Will he pay for, for other people to take a vow, a Nazarite vow? And Paul figures, well, this has nothing to do with salvation. 
This is not an issue of what you need to do in order to become a Christian. This is nothing whatsoever to do with uh, your obedience to Jesus Christ. This is, at this point, a conscience issue. Conscience issue. And Paul decides, on the basis of it being a conscience issue, that he will go along with it, and he does. He does here. He goes, uh, in fact, what he does is fulfill his own words to the Romans when he says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for even Christ did not please himself. This was not a business of compromise. He wasn't compromising any Christian truth or doctrine. He was not compromising the gospel. He was not encouraging people to go back into Judaism. He was not trying to be culturally relevant to get the gospel into the Jewish religion. He was acting on behalf of his fellow believers whose consciences were in the process of transitioning out of Judaism at this point in the history of salvation into Christianity. And he acts on their behalf. Now, there's a sense in which the specifics of that action of Paul don't apply today. Time has passed. The transitional period is over. The apostles died. Christianity is the new Israel. Israel continues. It continues. It hasn't been replaced. It continues. Believing Jews have been joined by believing Gentiles in the Israel of God. This language of replacement theology is isn't the Bible language. It's not that we've replaced Israel. We have been, by God's grace, joined to the believing Israel. By God's grace, we are the also-rans. We are and the Gentiles who have been added to the Israel of God, which is the believing Israel. The believing Israel. But there are other things in our lives. There are other areas, conscience areas, that have nothing to do with salvation, but we all have our hang-ups and, and, and issues and so forth. And, and in, the, in the way this works out in the church is that we, that we give space to each other. We don't impose our will on other people. But my question this evening is this, uh, as I close. Very often this action of Paul is taken hijacked by some modern missiologists. And the language of the Jew-Gentile question is taken up and applied in our day to the Muslim-Christian question. And so there is a missiologist position today that says that Muslims can remain Muslims and still trust in Jesus. Can you do that? I would say you cannot do that because their, their customs are not simply cultural icons. They are religious icons. Their practices are not simply adiaphora, that is, things that are indifferent. They don't matter. They matter a lot. And they matter a lot in this regard that they, that they are connected to a religion which specifically, inherently, is anti-Christ. Islam is an anti-Christ movement. It rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. It rejects God as Trinity. 
You cannot compromise with something like that. This whole language that's used today about the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is a nonsense. There's only one Abrahamic religion, the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic religion. Islam is a false religion led by a false prophet. And we cannot compromise with that. The Bible says about the Jews, salvation is of the Jews. The whole of Jewish history in the scriptures has found its fulfillment in Christ. You can't apply what Paul is doing here in any other missiological context today in the same way in which it's used in this transitional moment from Judaism into Christianity. That doesn't mean we're to be insensitive as we try to reach the world for Christ, as we try to be relevant to people. But let me just say this. All our cultural relevance, all our attempts to connect with people in our culture today will not make the unbelieving world any more or less resistant to the gospel than it is. The reality is the man without Christ, the woman without Christ is ironclad in their resistance to the gospel until the Spirit of God opens their eyes to see and their ears to hear, their hearts to embrace, their wills to obey the Lord Jesus. And what that takes, let me tell you this, is not fancy programs of cultural relativization. What it takes is prayer. It takes prayer for the Spirit of God to do what the Spirit of God does with mighty power, opening the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf to hear the good news of Jesus. Here's Paul. He's willing to risk his life and his reputation for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your grace you'd enable us to see the areas of our lives where faith manifests itself as risk. Maybe at work tomorrow, where we risk a friendship by saying what we believe. Or we risk a promotion by expressing an opinion in the boardroom. Risk comes into faith as we live it out in, the, in our lives. We pray that we'd resolve tonight, however that appears in our own circumstances, that like Paul, we'd be able to say, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.